You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law Corporation, and just a reminder, please vote for me if you are a lawyer in British Columbia to be a venture of the Law Society of uh, British Columbia, because I really want to be a venture. And you can listen to last week's podcast for my explanation of some of the reasons why I think I would make a great venture. But today we're not wasting any time talking about me because we have somebody way more cool uh, on the podcast than I could ever be. Uh, We are joined again uh, by Ron Moore, who is the, uh, I don't know, probably the most overqualified lawyer I know. Uh, He has a a bunch of science degrees, uh, a Juris Doctor, and is a trained uh, Red Seal chef with a culinary arts degree. So there's literally nothing he cannot do. Also, like a former police officer and dog handler. Um, And if you ever get the chance to meet him, talk to him about some of his crazy stories because they are all amazing and interesting and good. Um, And ask him about the rats. Ask him about the rats. Um, So without further ado, uh, here is Ron Moore to talk to us this week about the combination of Ambien, sleeping medication, and sleep driving that seems to be increasingly common in the United States. Thank you to Ron Moore for joining us again on the Driving Law Podcast. Ron, welcome back. Thank you. Um, So I've been getting a lot of questions lately from clients um, and members of the public about what the state of affairs is when it comes to taking prescription drugs and driving. And you have some particular expertise in one prescription drug, um, Ambien, that has caused a lot of litigation uh, in relation to impaired driving. Is that right? Right. Uh, and Ambien has a couple of unique features that make it a little bit different than a lot of the other drugs we deal with in impaired driving. What are those features? Well, Ambien is called a sedative hypnotic. It's used as a sleep aid. In fact, it's probably the most popular sleep aid in terms of market share in the United States. Now, there's estimated that about one in five people has a sleep disorder of some type. And so there's anywhere from 19 to the peak of it, about 40 million prescriptions for Ambien in the United States. So it's a drug that is, is well used. Um, but it's used to make you fall asleep. So you can imagine that if you were taking a drug that made you sleepy, it could affect your ability to drive safely. One of the unique things about Ambien, however, is that it seems to also produce a condition called a synambulism or a parasomnia where you become aroused during your sleep cycle and get up and do things when you're not actually awake. And so there have been reports of people eating in their sleep or gardening in their sleep, having conversations with people, and even getting in their car and driving when they're not aware that they're doing that activity. And so they're driving while asleep. And um, I assume that the crash risk involved in driving while asleep is very high? 
yes, when you're asleep, <laughs> you're not taking in information as well as you would be when you were awake and aware. So quite frequently, the driving while asleep cases come to us as accident cases. And and when people are driving while asleep, do you know, like, are their eyes open? Like, do they look like they're awake if you were to sort of interact with them? Yes, they do. Their eyes are open. They're able to interact uh to different degrees, depending upon uh, where they are in the sleep cycle and how aroused they've become. But they'll answer questions. Oftentimes their answers are a little confused, um, but they'll still be interactive. So they'll be interactive, their answers will be confused, and they may not entirely appreciate what's going on around them, much like a drunk person. Right. <laughs> Very much so. Um, one of the other things that Ambien causes is an anterior grade amnesia. So when you wake up from this experience, you won't remember it. And so quite frequently in these ambient parasomnia cases, the person wakes up in jail having been brought from the crash scene and wonders where they are and why they're there. Wow. And so is there, like, how do you defend yourself if you're, you know, in this, in this ambient-induced state of driving? Well, it really requires uh, intervention of good counsel and uh, consultation with a toxicology expert and probably also your physician who's been treating you. Ambien is a uh, prescription medication, and so we want to make sure that you've been taking it appropriately and with, within the correct dosage regimen. Uh, the United States uh, FDA has reduced the uh, re recommended dosages because of some of these side effects that uh, people have experienced under the influence of the drug. But to defend yourself uh, in these types of cases, you would need to have somebody who is familiar with the different types of behaviors that Ambien can cause and be able to distinguish between cases where somebody has taken Ambien, gone to sleep, woken up, and gone out and drove versus the cases where somebody has taken Ambien and not woken up but become aroused and gone out and driven while asleep. Um, there's also a small group of people, percentage-wise, that abuse Ambien, and at very high doses, Ambien uh, can cause hallucinations and euphoria, a uh, very uh, non-anxious state. So there's a group of people that do abuse Ambien, and when they get uh, very high Ambien doses, they can also end up driving and, and getting in trouble. Uh, and then Ambien takes a little while to get out of your system. Usually it's, it's one of the faster drugs to get out of your system as far as sleep aids go. But if you get up early the next morning and, and start to go about your day, you may still have some residual impairment uh, from taking the Ambien. So if, you're, if you end up in the situation where you're suspected of being driving under the influence of Ambien, you need to retain counsel that has the experience to know to, to distinguish between those different types of cases and retain appropriate experts that can talk about how to distinguish between being awake and impaired versus not being awake and impaired. Now, one of the coolest things about you, Ron, is that you are not just a toxicologist, uh, not just a chef. Uh, you are also a lawyer. So you're like totally versed in both the legal side of this as well as the scientific side of this. Right. And so that's why uh, I think we talked uh, last time about the number of times that we present at different conferences. And this is a topic that I presented on very recently in California on these differences in both the legal side of the investigation and also on the uh, toxicology side. Speaking for a moment about the legal side, 
it raises some very interesting issues in terms of how we address uh, culpable conduct. You know, when is somebody's behavior wrong? And one of the first things you learn in law school in criminal law is that any criminal act is a combination of both the act and the mental state that accompanies the act. So it's the actus reus and the mens rea. Mm-hmm. And in the instance of these driving while asleep cases, and the question is, is somebody intending to drive? Uh, is it an intentional act that they commit? And if it is, you know, what mental state do they have to have? Driving under the influence is typically a general intent crime and in that all you have to do is intend to drive, not to drive under the influence. But Ambien kind of presents a situation where you didn't intend to drive. You intended to go to sleep. Mm-hmm. And so is that even an act that we would consider criminal? So it falls into a category of is that voluntary or involuntary intoxication? And unfortunately, some courts have taken the position that if you took a drug knowing that it could potentially have the side effect of causing you to drive in your sleep, that's still a voluntary intoxication and not a defense to driving under the influence, even though you had no intention of driving. And even Um, though you took the drug, even though the drug was prescribed to you. Right. The drug's prescribed to you, and the, the side effect itself is actually fairly rare. Um, but because there are so many people taking it, even a, even a rare side effect is going to have a significant number of occurrences just because of the sheer volume of people taking it. Uh, I, so we do run into these cases. I, I promised you I wouldn't ask you for statistics, but I am going to ask you one thing. Do you know how many prescriptions for Ambien are written every year in the U.S.? Well, the most recent statistic I could come up with was in 2016, where there were just over 19 million. Oh, my God. <laughs> in 2011, 2012, at the peak of Ambien's popularity, I read numbers anywhere from about 25 to almost 40 million prescriptions in the United States. So even if the side effect appeared in 1% of, of users, that's still like, was that 100,000 users? No, 10,000 users, 10,000 people who could be charged with this. Right. So, you know, potentially it's still, you still encounter a significant number of people that uh, come to you with these types of situations. Wow. Um, so where, how, how are courts sort of drawing this line between the, you know, the voluntary taking of, of the drug, knowing its side effects, and the involuntary taking of, of the drug and getting behind the wheel? Um, what is the trend that you're seeing in most of these cases for the line-drawing exercise that the court has to engage in? So a lot of it seems to come down to how much knowledge you had when you took the drug about what the potential side effects could be. And so it comes down a lot of times to a factual determination of did your doctor explain to you what the potential side effects were and do you have any of the risk factors that would raise the likelihood that you might be subjected to or subject to one of these types of conditions. So some of the things that make it more likely are, are things like taking another depressant like alcohol along with the Ambien. And so a number of the cases I've been involved with have been people who had some alcohol earlier in the evening and didn't realize they hadn't burned it all off when they took their Ambien to go to bed. And so now they've got a combination of ambient and alcohol in their system, which makes it more likely that they might be subject to the uh, the effect uh, of driving while still asleep. 
is there reluctance, do you find, with doctors who haven't advised their patients of, of the risk of the sleep driving or the after effects of Ambien and, and then the driving component? Do you find they're reluctant to testify? I, I think there's a certain reluctance among some of them uh, because of they think of the potential liability that they didn't properly advise their patient about it. Um, and, and doctors are just generally oftentimes reluctant to get involved in the legal system. Yes, <laughs> I do know that from my own experience. Um, okay, uh, so there's there's that component of it. Um, but you also said, you know, you that was the legal component. What about the scientific component? Why is it that this happens? Uh, well, it has to do with how Ambien works in the body. Ambien works similarly to a lot of the benzodiazepines. It works at the GABA receptor in the body, and the GABA receptor is the one that's kind of like your, your nervous system's brakes. It's what slows things down. Um, but the uh, Ambien drug works at a very specific subunit of the receptor, uh, so it doesn't have some of the other effects that benzodiazepines have. Um, but the way it seems to interact with the sleep cycle allows people to have some level of arousal, but not complete arousal. So you can, you know, you're still asleep, but part of you wakes up, just not the conscious part. And you're able to engage, in, especially in overlearned activities or things that you do almost uh, automatically. Um, like, like eating driving, and driving. Eating, things you don't have to put, put your mind to real well, or real uh, you know, it doesn't take a lot of concentration or effort um, to do. Some of those things you can do almost without thinking about it, and so you can do them almost in your sleep. <laughs> so for trial lawyers, they could, like, wake up and conduct a trial in their in their sleep because they do it so often. Right. Probably not, but... <laughs> um, and, and so you mentioned also this category of people who are who take the Ambien and then drive the next day after they've had sort of a, a night of sleep. What, what goes on there? Okay, so Ambien typically takes anywhere from about 8 to 10 hours to leave your system. Mm -hmm. And so if you, you know, you're, the, when you take Ambien, your doctor tells you to only take it on evenings where you know you're going to be able to get a full night's sleep. But we know how life happens, and sometimes things happen where you may have to get up early and get about your day before you had an opportunity to get that much sleep or to have that much time go by uh, to have the drug completely leave your system. And so there is, uh, in some cases, some residual impairment that may be present the next day, especially if you haven't had enough time to get the drug fully out of your system, which is one of the reasons why the FDA has reduced the dosages, especially in women. They found uh, with some of the more recent research that women and elderly people aren't able to metabolize the drug quite as quickly as the you know, middle-aged male population that they normally test on, uh, which caused them to want to reduce the, the dosages because those uh, the women and the elderly were having some residual morning-after impairment that they weren't seeing in the earlier test populations. And are the people who have the, the morning-after impairment, is it like, you know, after a night of hard drinking where you can feel you're still drunk the next morning or where you, uh, where you feel extremely hungover, where you can tell there's something wrong with you? Or is it, is it something that you don't even notice? Um, you know, I'm not sure quite how to characterize that. From my understanding, I don't think it's quite as bad as a really bad hangover, <laughs> but maybe just some residual drowsiness and you're just not quite as quick and, and you know, having quite the reaction time that you would have if you were fully rested. 
and so you're just a little bit slower and a little bit more drowsy than you would be after the full night's sleep and once the drug is completely left your system. Right. And so your perception would be that you just didn't get a good night's sleep, which wouldn't be abnormal because you're taking a sleeping medication because you have some type of problem sleeping. Right. And so the, the drug makes that just a little bit worse. Okay. Um, and in that involuntary intoxication sort of spectrum that we were talking about, where does the morning after situation fall? How are courts sort of addressing that? Well, again, it's a, it's a question of do you know or should you have known that if you didn't leave enough time to get the drug fully out of your system that you might still be subject to residual effects of the drug? So it can, it's almost a knowledge or negligence standard. It's, it's, you know, you knew you took the drug, you knew this drug has an effect on you, you're obligated not to drive until you know that the drug's effects have left you. And so if you get up early and, and go off to drive, they're going to be looking at, you know, were you properly advised and did you still feel like you were tired when you went out and started to drive? So a lot of it has to do with factual determinations about how much knowledge you had and how much knowledge you should have had at the point where you decided to go out and drive and potentially endanger your fellow drivers. Do you think that that puts too high of a burden on people who are accused in those situations that they they should or, or potentially could be facing those situations, that they should have to know all about how the drug they take is metabolized, you know, based on their gender and their age, um, and make those decisions before they get behind the wheel after they've got what would normally be a regular night's sleep to anybody else? You know, that's a really good question, and I'm not sure where else we could place the, the, the burden. I mean, it, it, it is that they're the ones taking the drug and have a responsibility to make sure that they're driving safely, but it is a difficult task sometimes to, to tell whether or not you're going to have, you know, enough residual impairment that would, might make you dangerous, um, especially if you've been taking the drug for a while. Although Ambien is a drug that you're supposed to only take for short periods of time. It's not a drug you're supposed to take for more than a couple of weeks. It's supposed to be short-term treatment of insomnia. Um, but yeah, it is a difficult question to answer, and I'm not sure where we would uh, need to come down on that. What about um, uh, what about other sleep aids, like other types of sleep drugs? Do they have the same effect as Ambien, or is this a problem that's unique to Ambien? You know, there have been reports of similar occurrences with other sleep aids, but because the other sleep aids don't have the same um, quantity of prescriptions we're not seeing quite as much. Um, so I know there are a number of other drugs that have reports of other types of parasomnias that have occurred, but not with the same frequency as we see it with Ambien. Okay. Um, and so there's something about the way that Ambien's chemical structure is that sort of triggers this sleep driving or parasomnia experiences more than something else, I assume. Yeah, it, it, it seems to be something that, that is a little bit more prone with Ambien, but may also occur with certain other drugs. But just because, like I said, the, the sheer quantity of prescriptions with Ambien would ensure that we're going to see a certain number of these otherwise rare side effects that we might not see nearly as many of in a drug that's not prescribed quite as much. Are there safer, I don't want to use the term safer, but are there drugs that you, uh, from your experience, know don't tend to produce parasomnias? Um, you know, that's a hard question for me to answer. I, okay. I don't know that I've got uh, <laughs> All the data. stats on that <laughs> yep. at hand. The, 
but I am encouraged that there is a lot of ongoing research looking at other mechanisms to treat uh, sleep disturbances that get into other co- some of the causes for sleep disturbances. So we're looking at things like the sleep-wait cycle and, and circadian rhythms and trying to look at medications that uh, induce sleep or encourage sleep in other ways besides at the GABA receptor. And so those, we have some newer drugs on the market that are, are just you know, just out of clinical trials and just making it into the mainstream market that have a lot of promise for treating different varieties of sleep disturbances without potentially causing some of these parasomnias. So, you know, there is a a bright spot on the future. Okay. Um, Anything else you think people should know if they're, you know, taking Ambien and concerned about potentially getting an impaired driving charge? Well, I think that uh, a couple of words of of, uh, advice might be appropriate. Uh, One of them is that if you're going to be taking Ambien, you might want to take some steps to remove your keys from availability. uh, (laughs) One of the recommendations is, is, you know, give your keys to somebody else and have them put them away so that you don't know where they are until you get up the next morning and ask for your keys back. And that way you can't drive uh, in one of these parasomnia situations. Uh, The other thing is to be very upfront with your prescribing physician about your lifestyle and be very cognizant of uh, not doubling up on things like taking Ambien too close to drinking alcohol. Um, Be aware of how long it takes you to burn off alcohol. And that's something, especially with women, they don't realize is that they may get higher blood alcohol levels than they expect because women don't uh, generally have um, as much water in the body as men do they may get higher blood alcohol levels. It's going to take them longer to burn off the same quantity of alcohol that a man might be able to burn off sooner. And so they're at risk of having alcohol in their system longer that might combine with the ambient they're taking at bedtime. Uh, so be aware of that. Any history of sleepwalking is of concern. And sometimes other medications that you take may interfere with the enzymes that metabolize uh, ambient and cause it to be in the system longer. So you'll make sure that you communicate with your doctor and with your uh, pharmacist about all the medications you take and any herbal supplements that you may take so they can check to make sure that none of those drugs interfere with the metabolism of Ambien. Wow, okay, that's a lot of work. But if you do all those things, you're going to be in a better position, legally speaking, I would expect, than if you just take the drug and see what happens. (laughs) Nobody wants to uh, get into an accident that they uh, didn't even know they were driving for. And so let me just a little bit of extra precaution Uh, when you're taking Ambien to make sure that that doesn't end up happening to you. All right. Well, thank you, Ron, for sharing your insight yet again on the podcast. How can people uh, hire you if if they need your assistance in an Ambien case or any other type of of drug or alcohol impairment case? Oh, my website is probably the best way of of finding out about me and the practice that I have. My website is www.ronaldlmore.com. It's R-O-N-A-L-D-L-M-O-O-R-E.com. Okay, wonderful. Well, thanks for joining us on the podcast. All right, thank you. Talk to you again soon. Thank you to Ron Moore, who has uh, graciously uh, joined us again on the podcast and given his time. And what I didn't uh, announce before Ron's interview was that I was super late because of bad traffic. So this is the second time that Ron has appeared. Both times I've been late to getting our interview started. So I appreciate his accommodation as well. Um, And I encourage anybody with an Ambien case to reach out to Ron because he is, as far as I know, the greatest expert on this. And now back by popular demand? Paul Doroshenko. It turns out I'm popular. It doesn't? Good. Who knew? Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> I, di- I didn't know you were popular. I was just well, saying people that. People have been telling me that they like uh, listening to me on the podcast. Oh, so. well, good. I'm glad. Well, I get feedback on the street, but of course I get feedback on the street from all sorts of things. And this week was a, uh, you know. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you get, hey, asshole, duck in your yeah, exactly. shirt and, and comb your hair. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, that happens to me too. Hey, loser, get yeah. a job. You know, I was real tempted to get uh, Jan Semenov on to talk about uh, the big New York Times article on breath testing, which I would love to talk to you about tonight. But I'm going to adjourn that um, discussion because... We have to. Yeah, we have to adjourn it because that's like a show special. We need more time than we have on this episode of the Driving Law Podcast. And so uh, we're adjourning that, um, generally, and instead talking about a huge announcement that came from the government of Manitoba today. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Yeah, on the Driving Law podcast now, lawyers in Manitoba, it's time to start tuning in because uh, there's got a big learning curve. Yep. Um, Shit's getting real. Roadside prohibitions, yeah. Shit's getting real in Manitoba. Immediate roadside prohibitions are coming, and it's going to have a huge effect on the society. And the IRPs in Manitoba, the IRPs in Manitoba are actually worse than the IRP in BC. So BC can now no longer make its ridiculous claim that it has the toughest drunk driving laws in the country. Uh, that honor, dubious though it is, is now uh, the, the property of Manitoba. Oh my goodness. You know, at one point when the Supreme Court of Canada gives something a rubber stamp, they're 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 it's foolhardy because it's just a matter of time until people make it worse and worse and worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they have to back up and say, well, we didn't give you a rubber stamp for this and this and this. And, you know, you can't, you can't taser people at the roadside just because you think they've been drinking and driving. Just a matter of time. But, you know, that would be such a huge deterrent. Look at the drunk driving rates, Paul, in countries that use lashes as the punishment for a first offense. Sure. Of course, you also can't buy alcohol in those countries. So, you know, for the most part, it doesn't happen very often. Yeah, I was being sarcastic also. I know. Okay. Well, I, I don't know if I don't know if I was conveying it. I was, out, I was, it. Out, I was my, 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 uh, I'm sure Mothers Against Drunk Driving would be pro lashes. But the, um, no, I, I mean, I was, I was uh, conveying my, my sarcasm by upping the sarcasm. Okay. That's fire. I like Pointing out the factual basis behind it. Yeah. Hit that sarcasm up. No. Okay, so let me tell you about Manitoba's consequences. So, for people who blow warn, 0.05 to 0.079 is their warn threshold. So, we've already got a problem, Manitoba. Um, you got a problem, Manitoba. <laughs> you might want to give us a call, Manitoba government or police. 0.05 to 0.079. $400 fine for your first time. It's only 200 in BC. Yeek. Double the... BC, people are rich compared to Manitoba. I, I know. Manitoba. $400. Like, you can buy a house in Manitoba for 400 bucks. I'm pretty sure. I know. Well, not quite, but that, that it is like... It seems that way. People. It's a really, lot. Really that's a that's lot. That's a lot of money. Yeah, considering, like, if you are a woman, that's one nine-ounce glass of white wine. $400? I thought that was the cost of a haircut. <laughs> uh, no, $400 fine when you blow a warn from your one nine-ounce glass oh. of white wine. Okay. So, I mean, there's people in Vancouver who spent $400 on a glass of white wine. There's also people who spent $400 on a haircut. Yeah. yeah, one glass of white wine, that'll get you there. That'll, that'll get, get you to a yeah. If you're, you're a 120-pound woman, which, you know, lots of us are. I said us, but I'm not. <laughs> yeah, you lie. Anyway. Um, the, um, so that's the first time. 500 
for your second time. So again, $200 more than in BC and six, a small price to pay. 600, 600 for your third and subsequent offenses. Uh, it's a mandatory. That's worn. That's a worn. And that's worn, but there's more. But wait, that's so there's infrequent more. though. There's almost never, you never get anybody with multiple warrants. Anyway, go ahead. Uh, it's, it's, it happens, but yeah, it is infrequent. It's rare. Um, then, then there is a mandatory impound for the warrants, three days, uh, for the first offense and 30 days for a third or subsequent offense and a three day license suspension for a first violation and up to 60 days for subsequent. 60. It's 30 for your third in BC. It's 60 in Manitoba. Well, that is fascinating. Um, you know, you would think as you're listening to this, if you weren't us, you'd be thinking, well, that'll be a deterrent effect. Mm-hmm. But it's not because it's not. the problem is you can have inaccurate readings. You can have one glass of wine and be perfectly fine and assume that you're perfectly fine and reasonably assume that you're perfectly fine and uh, still end up blowing a warrant. But they got a problem with the warrant. Manitoba lawyers, you might want to call us about that one. Manitoba lawyers, you may want to call us. Now, a fail... What devices? Do you know what devices they're using? Are they using an FST? Or are they using a, a Drager? I don't know that. Um, we need to find that out. Sure. We can find that out if you'd like. Um, the point being that the, um, uh, the, the, the consequences are huge compared to what you're actually... Um, what you're actually doing wrong. I mean, there's not that much um, that takes you to get to the WARN level. And the risk that you're posing at a WARN level, like if you look at the crash risk data for a WARN, it's not that high compared to over 80. Really, really, really low. Well, maybe if you get uh, like even the... at eighty is really low. Yeah, and uh, and yet you're four hundred bucks for the for the point zero five. I mean, the only justification for the point zero five is to deter people from getting worse. Um, when you look at the point zero five crash risk, it is so low that it's as a society, it's very hard to justify that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that there's that. Then, in addition. There is also the fact uh, that the 90 days are worse. Okay. For the 90 days, first time offense, you are looking at a $700 fine. Ooh. 700 bucks. It's 500 in BC, and that's hard enough for most people. Like, I mean, it's several times a week where I get a phone call and people are saying, you know, what are the consequences um, uh, of this? What What's it going to cost me? And I say, well, this is a $500 fine. And they're like, I can't afford that. There's a lot of people who are, yeah, absolutely. Like probably the majority of the population, a $700 fine is People don't have $700. There's not $700 in their savings. People don't have $700 often room on their credit card. No. Uh, that just means people can't get their license back because they can't afford to pay that fine. Yeah. There's other consequences that are associated with it. I mean, in, in, in B.C., the fine is fixed. Uh, there is some room now with respect to the Responsible Driver Program, thank goodness for the NDP on this one, um, that you can get some sort of subsidy of some sort. I don't know what it is, and I'm, you know, we prefer to try and succeed for our clients. But the the um, point is that that is a huge hit, and that is a hit that people cannot afford. And if you're living, you know, in Minnedosa, and <laughs> you, 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 you drive and work in the week somewhere else, Saskatchewan or something like that, you, you're done. Mm-hmm. You can't even afford the 
fine to get back on the road. There's going to be a lot of people who cannot afford to get back on the road. Yep. So they have like a lower, um, an incorrectly low set blood alcohol level. I mean, ours is on the books the same, but programming is not. They've got higher fines that are going to be more detrimental to people's lives because of the different just financial landscape of Manitobans versus British Columbians. You know, British Columbia was a lot of very wealthy people who can a afford. Of, a lot of people who are struggling to get by here. Oh, too. Yeah, no, I'm not saying that. But, but there are, but you is, know. It is very different. If you counted the ridiculously rich people in B.C. and compared them to the ridiculously rich people or even just the rich or wealthy people in B.C. versus Manitoba, you've got more rich no, people here. Many. Yes. So, beyond the $700... Many of them are from Manitoba. Beyond the $700, there is also a 90-day driving prohibition. No surprise there. No. A license, uh, or sorry, a vehicle impoundment of 30 to 60 days. So your vehicle can be impounded for up to two months. Oh take take the minivan away from the family because dad had an extra beer after work with his buddies. So yep. mom can't take the, the kids game. to school. Played the hockey game, he had three beers instead of two. Yeah. Mom can't take the kids, kids to school or to their hockey practices. Or At minus 30. Yeah, in minus 30 weather. Yeah, it's it's yeah. real easy to walk around in the lower mainland right now and when we're, you know, in record-setting no-rain territory. That's not what yep. happened. It's insane. And, and, mandatory interlock. Mandatory. mandatory. Interlock for one year. One year? Mandatory one year. interlock. Yeah. And well, we, I guess we kind of had that when they were doing it wrong. Uh, Manitoba, by the way, we had mandatory interlock at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, they said that it wasn't mandatory, and that's the reason that the law was found to be not unconstitutional. Um, uh, because it was not punitive, because they could say that it wasn't mandatory. But if you're making it mandatory, you could have a problem. Mm-hmm. i got to tell you, the, Man- the uh, Manitoba um, Court of Queen's Bench and the Manitoba Court of Appeal are, in many respects, more likely to protect your rights than I have experienced in British Columbia. So I'm optimistic for Manitoba people who challenge this. You may actually get somewhere, although you're going to have to go up against the Supreme Court of Canada's decision. Um, uh, you make the, con- make the consequences higher, take a population that has more adverse effects from lengthy driving prohibitions. I don't know. I think, I think they've got a case for, you know, true penal consequences. And there is case law out there that says that, you know, taking somebody's license away can constitute a de facto form of house arrest, depending on, upon how remote and how challenging the terrain. Manitoba's well, a good case study you, for that. I will tell you, Manitoba lawyers, what we did wrong in British Columbia. Own me, and I'll tell you. But one of the things that we did wrong, uh, and that angered me from the start, and I was part of the group, but I, you know, it was a democracy. Um, but angered me from the start was we didn't pick a good case for it. We didn't have good case facts. We just had, you know, something that was neutral case facts, and everybody was optimistic about the justice system with these neutral case facts. And I thought if you can show that it's how cruel it is, it's going to be much better when we have to go to court. Don't pick one that has, you know. Uh, a guy who it's not going to really be affected uh, significantly by the IRP. Um, you've got remember you've got a bunch of superior court judges, all people who have uh, good income and can afford a taxi. If they got an IRP, it'd be no big deal. 
uh, get somebody who's actually going to be hit with it, maybe a person who looks like they're actually innocent. Uh, and there's a lot of them uh, who get IR- a lot of people who get IRPs who are factually innocent and end up stuck with it. So my view was to get a better case, and the um, I, you know I think it would be appropriate and wise for people, uh, lawyers in Manitoba, to be very selective about the case you decide to run if you intend to have a charter challenge to it. Mm-hmm. And also. Um, if you are doing it, please call us. We will definitely talk to you about it. So that's the big news in Manitoba. This is the start of the snowball downhill that we predicted. I'm surprised it took like a decade, but here we are. We knew it would happen. One thing that people don't know, uh, listeners may not know, is that Department of Motor Vehicles people get together for conferences a couple times a year, and they get PowerPoint presentations about the various things they've managed to blow past the courts. And we got some of those PowerPoint presentations through Freedom of Information requests. That's how we found out about it. Um, so it's not like they don't know what we've done here in B.C., and it's not like it isn't a calculated decision from one province to the next to figure out how they can take away rights um, and um, scrape away those protections that we have in law. Mm-hmm. So that's what they're working on. Yep. Anyway... Not much more we can say about that. I wanted to transition into our Ridiculous Driver of the Week, which is also another interesting, important discussion. And our Ridiculous Driver of the Week goes to a person who was not driving their vehicle. (laughs) A driverless vehicle in the parking lot of a Richmond shopping mall that just kind of went on its own. And we don't know yet why. We suspect. People seem to think that there's a new feature, a new app, and it's not on every Tesla, but it's on some of them. Yeah, they demonstrated Uh, it on Global with one of the reporter's Teslas. Oh, well, there you go. Mm -hmm. To come and pick you up. There may be circumstances where, you know, you want it to come and pick you up. Um, You know, you've got a bunch of heavy bags or something like that, and your Tesla's 30 meters down the road. Yeah, you're at Ikea. Uh, Sure. Well, no, I, I'm thinking parking lots is the problem, right? On the street where you've got all of the GPS, it's probably a lot easier. But this was going down the wrong lane, you know, struggling to figure out where it was going as the computer was trying to self-drive it through a parking lot. And that's what drew the attention of yep. onlookers with cameras. Yes. So whoever you were self-driving your car, don't do it again. But also, like, I, I, you know, a lot of the stories have focused on whether you can get in trouble for doing this as the, you know, quote-unquote driver or owner uh, or operator of the app. I want to ask you, Paul, what role does Tesla play in bearing responsibility for this? Well, this is an interesting thing, and I was thinking about it. I'm, I'm, I'm apparently quoted, I'm on the National, CBC The National, uh, tonight, this Thursday night, about it. I haven't seen it yet. I haven't seen what the clip I was. I thought you were on last night. No, they, they interviewed me last night, and it was used on a bunch of radio, CBC radio stuff yesterday, but they used it tonight. I got probably a big news uh, story last night, and this was a lesser news story, or they wanted to, to talk to Tesla. You know, you think about it. When we have uh, breath testing equipment in Canada, it is approved for use. It goes through a federal approval process, and then it is it is approved by a ordering council, and basically it's, it's a regulation. Mm-hmm. Um, but then they come along and they change it after the fact, and we've always argued, well, this is no longer the device that was approved uh, because they've changed the software, they've changed this, and they've changed that. You know, 
it's not an approved device. And the courts have kind of, everybody, all the judges shrug their shoulders. Oh, it's still approved enough. <laughs> but you're thinking to yourself, Tesla uh, presents a vehicle and all their crash test data to the federal government, or they present a car to be crash tested by the federal government, but the Canada Safety Council, whoever it is, looks at it and says, okay, yeah, this meets the requirements for it to be sold in Canada. And then they come along afterward and they modify it by uploading this um, software into your Tesla and then changing your and then you're your, updating your app on your phone and it's no longer the car that was approved mm-hmm. but also um, you, and the federal self-driving probably, federal right. government has laws you can't have autonomous vehicles mm-hmm. so they're putting features on cars making them available to users that are in violation of, of federal law for well, vehicles you can't purchase an autonomous vehicle yeah, but you doesn't mean you can't once you own it and you autonomize your vehicle, you can't stop there that. That's no, an issue of there are no laws that permit that in Canada. Permit, it's an issue of prohibit. So the issue is the Motor Vehicle Act prohibiting it. The Motor Vehicle Act does prohibit it. Does prohibit self-driving cars? Yes, if you, I would argue, that if you read the provisions of the Motor Vehicle Act and the obligations on a driver. Um, they have to drive with due care and attention, reasonable consideration, et cetera, et cetera. Those provisions capture uh, an obligation for the driver to be in the driver's seat, with assuming physical control over the vehicle. I don't think I, so. I also I think, think so. provisions think like so. drive with controls obstructed contemplates you not having anything between you and the steering wheel. But it's not an offense, Kyla. It's not an offense. There's not an offense there to have your self-driving car self-drive itself. And that's the problem. And the, I mean, sure, you can charge somebody with driving without due care and attention. Uh, not them, the registered owner, because you probably can't show that they had control over it to do that. Um, and, you know, I'm sure we could run a trial about it and see whether or not that applies. But nobody would run a trial because there's no points on their license and it wouldn't make sense to run a trial. But uh, the, the, there is no prohibition about doing this in particular and they're going well, to in have particular, to particular but there's a they're going to have to particularize this because otherwise it's 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 wide open right now and seems they're gonna like, have to act fast it seems like relatively easy legislation to pass like literally table oh, sure. amendment to the motor vehicle act that says you you must be driving the car from inside the car you cannot operate a motor vehicle by remote or programming without a driver driving it yeah that's what i said but you said it more elegantly. Still not well thought out. <laughs> no. uh, CBC stuck the camera in the face, in my face, and said, "You know, like what is this?" And I was like, uh, "Well, I, I don't. I, I mean, I don't think they planned for it, but maybe they did plan for it. But you know, maybe there's somebody who works over at the superintendent's office whose job it is to, you know, sit all day and research new legislation with respect to self-driving cars. I mean, I don't know. It just kind of feels like they were, they were, the governments were not prepared for this. Oh, I know. And this it's legislation like they, should have been there before. Like, yeah, they, passed, we knew that this was coming. We saw them testing it through, you know, through California and other states have, have done test, you know, pilot programs with it. Oh, I know. Yeah. Why are we not acting, you know, just like we're behind the ball with, with um, Uber and, and ride sharing apps behind the ball with, you know, cyber stalking mm-hmm. behind the ball with with online uh, bullying cyber, and harassment. Online bullying and harassment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We just we're just dropping the ball on prohibiting All self-driving of our vehicles. Not prepared to deal with it. Wait, it's it's as though our government is so resistant to technology changes 
that they aren't contemplating that A, you can generate a revenue stream from prohibitions that you enforce through fines, and B, uh, you create work for yourself and you make a population happy when you deal with issues rather than creating these weird, like, legal chaos situations. Chaos. Chaos. In a Richmond parking lot. Yeah. What That's a, a headline once a week. The wrong way. I was in, um, I, I went the other night and it was dark and I had nothing to drink and I almost turned into the sort of oncoming traffic out of a parking lot and I thought, Jesus, I bet a self-driving car wouldn't make that fucking mistake yeah. to back up before I went through. Anyway, a self-driving car in many respects is probably going to be safer than humans uh, behind the wheel. But at this point, we need to have legislation to deal with it. And they need to think of like some comprehensive legislation. They might want to pat, pass a piece of patchwork now. And I think, and I think they um, need to create also penalties for vehicle manufacturers that make this technology available where it's prohibited. Because if you give people a cool toy to make their regular old car into a radio-controlled car, you know that they're going to use it. You shouldn't give them that power if it's not lawful. Sure. I, and back to tasering, I think we should just be tasering those people who did it at Tesla. No. No, we're not going to taser them. They're like immune to electricity there because they're around it so often. Probably. <laughs> okay. Well, that was our ridiculous driver of the week. And um, the last thing in our podcast this week is uh, us closing out with your big song. Our well, big song. Our big song. Our big song. Um, the, um, Me or the star. We've been singing to you. We've been singing to you on the podcast each time. You, um, you thought it was usually, all a joke people usually yeah everybody thought it was we were just having fun but you know we are um, we are fans of classic country and uh mm. we talked about the well kyla um you are i, I like it. some dolly and i like some um exactly. willie nelson exactly and that's about it <laughs> um jolene 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 that is not her best song it's a good one um anywho so, of course, we have this lawyer told me not to talk to you trademark that we registered, and uh, we had some T-shirts that we gave away on to people on Twitter, and people were writing back to us saying you should make that into a country music song, or it sounds like a country music song, so we did it. Yeah. And uh, you broke my heart and left me there to die. Well, hey, I'm We gonna... wrote a country music song, and we, and we put it together, and we made a video, and uh, you can hear it. Yeah, so today... For its world podcast premiere, I think. <laughs> and in its first week premiere, uh, everybody, we're closing out the podcast. And uh, you can hear our song, uh, Lawyer Told Me Not to Talk to You, by Prairie Paul, Moxcar Kyla, and the Accutones. Enjoy. <laughs> You broke my heart and left me there to die You told me 3.14 wasn't pie You left me, took my money, my dog too Lawyer told me not to talk to you You called the law and now I'm here in jail Paul said don't worry, you'll get bail I'm glad my lawyer knows just what to do Lawyer told me not to talk to you 
I knew that you were cheating while I can showed you tricks. The pictures are an iCloud, soon you'll get your nets. But I still love you, honey, how we did this, I don't know. You told them that I pushed you, I showed them my bruised toe. I drove my truck and crashed it in a ditch. You called the cops cause you're a mean old snitch. You said I'm drunk but I just got the flu. Lawyer told me not to talk to you. I've had enough You're treating me so bad And so rough The time has come that I'm a Gonna sue Lawyer told me not To talk to you You broke my heart and left me There to die You told me 3.14 Wasn't fine You left me, took my money My dog too Lawyer told me not To talk to you you left me, took my money, my dog. Lawyer told me not to talk to you.